I think a lot more people in their 20s now are working on self-exploration. I think my generation didn't do that because we had no guidance from our own fathers in that space. It wasn't something our fathers did. And so there was no kind of path for men to kind of explore themselves in a more meaningful way. This is Chan with The Plan, the podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy, actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, Max. Good to be here. Really pleased to be here. How's the UK? UK is hot for us for the summer. We don't usually have it this hot, but we're in the middle of a kind of an extended heat wave, which is on the one hand lovely, and on the other hand, no one's prepared for. So, yeah, interesting. Is there a lot of warnings right now saying, like, stay inside, like, have your air conditioning on? Well, we're just not set up with air conditioning and stuff. So, actually, you know, people are heading to the supermarket because it's cool in the supermarket. <laughs> in the freezer section, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Again, I really appreciate you coming on today and you focus on helping men in midlife provide direction on where they should go next. We discussed offline that midlife crisis is not the right word. So why don't you elaborate more on why you focus on midlife more so than the term midlife crisis? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, for me, midlife crisis is sort of immediately a derogatory term, right? It's like society has kind of position the midlife crisis, especially for men, as something slightly ridiculous. It's a sign of sort of male immaturity. It's a sign of kind of men being sort of led by their testosterone. And as a result of which, it actually creates an environment in which men can't admit to feeling vulnerable. Because the moment they kind of say, well, I think you know, I'm in midlife and I'm feeling really unsure and I don't have any direction and I'm feeling really apathetic. And it's like, but I'm not having a midlife crisis because if I had a midlife crisis, then that'd be weak and pathetic. So I find the midlife crisis term kind of unhelpful in societal words, but actually the, when it was first created, so the term was originated in the 50s by a psychoanalyst, and it was actually referring to kind of the awakening to your impending mortality. And actually, that's the great unspoken thing, which is what's happening in you know, late 30s, early 40s is a sudden realization, whether it's because you're having children or because your parents are getting older and possibly passing away, that actually you know, life is not never ending. And we go through this phase where we move from being kind of narcissistic to being it's all about us to what's called generativity, which is this idea of the next generation coming. How can we nurture it? How can we provide for it? How can we create a legacy? And I'm not meaning like a public library with our name on it. I mean, a legacy in terms of maybe our values or what we believe in, as well as, you know, businesses and things like that. And so for me, it's more of a midlife transition that we're trying to get into. Crisis sounds like it's kind of a short-term thing that needs to be fixed. Whereas in truth, I think through the years of midlife, it's an extended period of change that we're trying to get our heads around. So the term midlife crisis, in terms of like visually speaking, this older gentleman with a fancy car and a younger woman, right? But that's not really the case anymore, right? Yeah, that can be the midlife experience. What I would say is that for the people, for the men who end up in that situation, often they're running away from something they won't admit, which is actually a fear of mortality, a lack of feelings of self-worth, a lack of direction and purpose. And so they try and fix it in the way they know how, which is to be immature, effectively, to go out, find a younger woman, you know, buy a sports car, go to the gym, you know, that kind of stuff. But actually, it's a symptom of a general malaise, general unease, and a sense of not knowing what to do with the rest of your life. 
Yeah, because when you're in your 20s, right, you feel invincible because you have so much time. And then as you get older with family and then your grandparents or parents pass away, then like, oh, this is not going to last forever. And then they start to panic, right? So before we talk more about helping men with midlife, what do you recommend people in their 20s, men in their 20s, in terms of having a good plan? So then when the midlife does happen, they are prepared for it. Yeah, good question. And I think a lot of people in my generation, certainly, and I think generations behind me are better at kind of being more aware of their mental health, more aware of their true needs and values. A lot of my generation, you know, followed the traditional path of college or university, depending where you are, going into a big corporation, working your way up through the ladder. And you get to kind of your 30s or 40s, and you suddenly realize that you've lost a sense of why you're doing what you're doing, which is normally working phenomenally hard, being fairly trapped by a salary into a certain lifestyle, and just not being happy or content. And I think what you want to do in your 20s is find your true calling. You want to find your true path, right? You want to find the thing that gives you energy, that feels like it has value, that feels like it represents your values and beliefs, rather than adopting a corporate's values and beliefs and kind of losing yourself in the system. I think a lot more people in their 20s now are working on self-exploration. I think my generation didn't do that because we had no guidance from our own fathers in that space. It wasn't something our fathers did. And so there was no kind of path for men to kind of explore themselves in a more meaningful way. And so we fell into the trap of following the old behaviours, following our parents, following our fathers, especially. In your 30s and 40s, you wake up and you realise you spend a lot of time doing something you have no real feelings about or any sense of energy for. So I think for 20, yeah, it's a great time for figuring out who you are, you know, and that includes making mistakes and getting out there and trying stuff. So I'm a big fan of the phrase playing with the possibility. I think your 20s is a time for playing with different possibilities, not being scared, not being stuck in a swim lane, but going out there and exploring stuff that feels like it's energizing and finding the thing that's right for you as an individual. Yeah, you made a good point because in your early 20s, you don't have a lot of responsibility, so you can take more risks. But then if you go into the corporate world right away, you're going to start getting used to the salary and you don't want to take a step back. Everybody talks about wanting to like try different things in their 30s, but then they don't want to give up the salary. So then they feel stuck, right? Because they have more responsibility. So as you said, the best time to take risks and discover yourself is in your 20s because the corporate world will always be there, but your time is not always going to be there, right? I mean, 100%. And I'd say probably 80% of my clients, midlife clients, feel stuck as much as anything by their lifestyle. And they're like, you know, I have to earn this money because that's the lifestyle I have. This is the mortgage I've got. This is the holidays we have to have to keep up with our friends. This is the school fees I need to pay to get my kids to good jobs. I'm trapped by the need to earn this salary, so I can't take a risk now because what if I screw it up and I can't actually maintain the salary? Whereas in your 20s, you're right, you don't have the dependencies and that's the time to kind of play with the options. I think the other thing about, you know, is I always talk to my clients about this idea of wholeness. You know, we talk about wholeness at work and bringing your whole self to work is, you know, a fairly recent kind of insight. But it's this idea that I think about most jobs, especially in the corporate world, that they're a box. And that box is fairly well defined in terms of job description, in terms of the skills and the capabilities and the qualifications you need to be in that box. Most of ourselves fits in that box, you know, maybe a large amount of our capabilities and skills. But for most people, not all of themselves fits in that box. There's bits of themselves which aren't required in that particular job. And so what we tend to do is we start to cease valuing those extra things. We only value the stuff that fits in the box because that's the stuff we're getting feedback on at work. That's the stuff that's getting us promotions and pay rises. And we lose a sense of our wholeness. 
And what I you know, really encourage people in their twenties to do is try and find something that utilizes all of their skills and capabilities, as opposed to only valuing some of them. Because you just end up losing part of yourself, and that's what happens in your thirties or forties. You suddenly wake up and go, "Well, hang on a minute. I have a real sense of value around this thing, and it's not being valued anywhere. And it's too late for me to bring it in at that point." So that's where people get stuck in the box of a job description. One of the other things is when you get older, as we said, there's more responsibilities, but you're also doing things to appease others, whether it's your wife, your kids, or even, as you said, buying stuff to compete with your friends, right? So it seems like when you get older, you lack a sense of personal fulfillment and responsibility because you're not making decisions for yourself. You're making decisions for other people. What are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely right. I mean, I think what you lose is a sense of self. And I do an exercise with all of my clients where we talk about the different roles you play. So thinking in life, rather than thinking about work and home as two sides of a coin, we say, well, what roles do you play in life? And actually, there's hundreds of different roles we play. You know, even within a work environment or a personal environment, we're playing different roles all the time. And when I get them to list out all their roles, almost all of them leave out the role of me. And that's really powerful. They're so caught up with being a husband, being a father, being a work colleague, a boss, whatever that might be, that they forget that actually one of the most important roles in life is just to be you know, yourself and find time for yourself. And that's what happens when you have more dependencies and less time, you feel more stretched. You, yeah, you totally lose a sense of what your own personal purpose is. So I think that's very true. And it can feel like a very self-centered thing to do, to sit down and think about you know, me, like I want to spend time on just myself. You know, in order to have the energy you need to give to other people, you need to get that energy from somewhere. And so in self-investment and doing the things that drive, you know, you're passionate about, that drive your energy, allows you to bring that energy to being a father, being a husband, being a friend, you know, it has to come from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And if you're always doing stuff for other people and not yourself, you're going to get very drained very quickly. I've experienced that myself, right? When you're doing so much for other people and then you have no downtime for you, it gets very taxing, right? Totally. I'm a big fan of this um, idea of energy drains and energy gains. You know, most of the stuff we do in life is either an energy gain, it gives us energy, even the idea of doing it gives us energy. And then we have things in our life which energy drains, where even the idea of doing it drains that sense of energy. You know, the goal is to have a life of energy surplus. But if you're living in a life of energy deficit, if everything is just draining your life, you look at your to-do list in the morning and, and it's just like, oh God, this thing, then this thing, then this thing, then of course you don't have any energy to give to anyone else. And that's when you start to, you know, to effectively to live a life where you're just surviving and that's not a positive place to be. Absolutely. And you've worked with a lot of clients, right? So what are the common fears in terms of taking action with you during their period of midlife? Human beings are not built for change. Psychodynamically, we're not built for change. A load of social defenses that we put in place to avoid change. And so you know, the biggest fear that clients come is that they're, you know, they're paying money to see a coach, which feels like you know, a selfish self-investment. And then their fear is, what if nothing happens? What if I can't change? What if I'm stuck in these patterns of behavior? That's the core part of coaching. That's what coaches do, is they help individuals unlock their ability to change. We can't make you change. We can't tell you what to change into but we can absolutely show you how to change and be there as a partner in that change. So a lot of it is just understanding the human psyche and how it reacts to change. So we do a lot of work around understanding that what stops us from changing is twofold. In the first instance, what stops us from changing is a sense of protecting something, a status quo. And often that is something that we've committed to ourselves unconsciously, which might be not putting myself at risk, not being financially insecure, not being loved, not belonging. And these are deeply rooted emotional areas in our life that we're trying to protect. So that keeps us in one place. 
And then the other thing is the fear of success. Often we'll set a commitment to change, but we're worried about if we succeed in that change, what will happen? So for example, if I work really hard and I get that promotion, will I actually end up doing more work? You know, or will I not be good enough at doing it? Or will it take me further away from my family? Or will it stop me being able to take my kids to the park? So, you know, we live in a world where constantly our inner critic is constantly trying to tell us it's okay to be exactly where you are, even though you're not happy. And that's a hard mental fight to play to kind of, you know, you're taking on yourself, you're taking on your insecurities, and you're taking on the framework of your upbringing that told you this is what you should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, let's say you're a high paying lawyer, or someone that's working in finance, you make the six figure salary, everybody's really happy for you. And when you want to do something else that may reduce your salary, it's frowned upon, right? So then you don't know what to do. You feel trapped because you don't want to do this anymore. But then if you do quit, then there's a whole after effect, right? Which goes back to my next question in terms of when these men are trying to make a change with you, do they get a lot of pushback from family and friends? It's a really interesting area that. So I would say that probably 50% of my clients don't tell anyone they're seeing a coach. Now, that may be different in the States and in Canada. In the UK, there's still a massive stigma for men around seeking help of any sort, be it therapy, be it coaching, counselling. And so probably my biggest lesson as someone who went through therapy and coaching myself, I was aware of the stigma, talk about the stigma around therapy, was I, I didn't think there would be that much of a stigma around coaching. And yet a large number of my clients, when you say, you know, who are you sharing your journey with? say, oh, no, you know, no one. I'd be the first in my family to see a coach. And so that's really interesting to me that there's still this massive kind of stigma around self-improvement and self-exploration for men in the UK. The ones who make the biggest gains in coaching, I think are the ones who share that, you know, share it with their family, start to use the language of coaching with their families around values, around purpose, around goals, because, you know, social commitment for starts a great bias that, you know, once we admit something socially, we tend to stick to it more. So I think that shared accountability is really important, but also it's just about, you know, understanding that your life is not, you know, an island. No man is an island is the truth, you know, and actually you need to be supported by those around you on that journey. It's a difficult journey. And if you're changing, that change is going to have a knock-on effect to the people you love and who love you. So why are you not talking about it? Yeah, you made a good point about the coaching aspect because I do career coaching and a majority of my clients, whether it's Canada, US or UK, are mostly women, right? Is it because of an ego thing where if men seek help, regardless if it's seeking help with another man or woman, there's that ego or a sense of weakness? It's a massive fear of vulnerability, yeah. I think we're still seeing a big shift in masculinity and what it means to be a man. And there's still an awful lot wrapped up in being powerful, being strong, being capable being you know, independent, all of that language is all about repressing your feelings and not sharing your feelings. And, you know, I remember listening to an interview with Simon Pegg, the, the British actor, who was talking about, you know, he was asked one of those traditional kind of questions that people like to ask actors, you know, are you a good father? You know, and he said, well, I'm both a good father and a terrible father because I'm making it up as I go along because we're the first generation of fathers who don't have any role models. We're trying to do it differently. We're trying to be more emotionally engaged with our kids. We're trying to be more involved. And we don't have any roadmap for that. So sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. And I think that's true. I think men in their 40s now are the first generation of men who are even remotely allowed to talk about their feelings, but there's still a massive fear over how they'll come across and you know, whether people will be judged for it. Yeah, one of the things that I've heard is... When a man gets laid off or fired from work, the more difficult part is actually telling their family that they got laid off more so than getting laid off itself, right? 
Yeah, massive social stigma. I mean, so I was um, back in, you know, I was in advertising for 20 odd years. I was COO of a big creative agency in London for five, six years, the last role of my career. And whilst I was planning on a transition out into coaching, I hadn't got it planned. And then COVID came and lots of things happened in the economic market. And I was made redundant as a COO and from a business I'd been with for 12 years. And it was absolutely mortifying. The phrase always, you know, this isn't personal, this is business, but it's deeply personal. And I was very lucky to have the support of my family around me and was able to talk about it. But I remember telling friends for the first time and feeling very insecure about admitting it. Because it, even though you know you've done nothing wrong, and even though you know that you're capable of your job and the decision's been made for all sorts of reasons that weren't about your ability, you don't know, other people don't know that. So yeah, I think there's a definite fear about that. There's a fear of people thinking you're making stupid moves, or you're making emotional moves. So I think people who leave high-paid, powered jobs, you know, to take a salary cut and are seen as stupid or, you know, what a, what a strange thing to do. Why would you do that? Why would you go? So I think, yeah, you're fighting the tide and that makes it much easier to stay put and suck it up because, right, it's easier. Going back to what you said, you were made redundant from COVID, right? From being a COO in uh, agency, right? Yeah. Yeah. So right now there's a lot of talk in, at least in North America, about the uh, recession, right? And there's a lot of layoffs, especially in tech and even rescinded job offers. So what's your advice from someone who actually went through a layoff in terms of planning and preparing for people who have been laid off or they feel uneasy because their company's not doing well? So there might be a chance that they might be restructured as well. So what is some advice you can provide for people that are currently in that boat? My advice is to be aware that you're always dispensable. You know, and one of the hardest things to recognize is that everybody is dispensable, however good they are. You know, especially if you're working for large corporations, multinational corporations, in my case, where a decision was made in another continent as to my role. So one is be more prepared. Don't feel secure because if you're employed by someone else, you're never secure. Decision can always be made and the people at the top will always get rid of the people further down. In terms of, you know, what it's like to go through it is you just have to find a way of hanging on to your own self-worth. You have to recognize this is not a judgment about your abilities. It's a commercial-based decision. And, you know, you have to have the confidence in yourself to go out and do whatever you want to do next. But I'd also say, see, it as a massive opportunity. I mean, for me, it was a life-changing opportunity because I was able to get off the hamster wheel of commuting and working, you know, crazy hours and weekends and everything and go, why am I doing this? What was the purpose? What energy did it and value did it bring to my life? What level of societal contribution did I feel I was making? Uh, here's an opportunity for me to figure it out anew. So I would say, you know, as much as it's obviously a deeply stressful time, for sure, I guess I believe in fate to some degree. And I believe that, you know, life gives us a chance sometimes to reassess. And a redundancy is actually a good time to take a few months to reassess. So what was your plan? Was the first few months downtime for you or did you really start pivoting and focusing on growing your coaching business at that point i was really lucky because i had been planning to get out of the industry for a while so i was actually halfway through a master's in organizational psychology at the time and so i felt like i was already building a different plan and a different future for me but in the middle of that i then realized well with a year to go of my master's i had the opportunity to learn some new skills and that's when i went in and did a coaching diploma which i'd never planned to do before i then fell in love with coaching completely. And actually now my business is much more predominantly towards coaching than it is towards organizational work. And so, you know, for me, there's that sense of one being ready. You know, people said to me, oh, you're so lucky because you had got a plan already. Well, I think you should always kind of have a plan. You know, I think if you're sitting there just reactively waiting to be shown the way forward, then you're always going to be at risk of, you know, someone taking advantage of you or finding yourself lost. 
and then I was therefore able to take some time because I was able to recognize that there was a plan in place that would come through. But, you know, it's never easy. And there have been many stressful nights and sleepless nights when you're looking at the money. I've got a family. I've got two kids. You know, so it's not a happy time to be suddenly thrown out. But equally, it's one of those moments you can look back on as being a life changing opportunity. It's much harder to jump off the cliff than to be pushed. It's not a nice experience either way. But, you know, actually, if I hadn't been made redundant, I'd probably still be doing that job and still hating most of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point you mentioned, right? Because everybody has all these ideas, but they're so wrapped around the salary and the prestige of their job, and they don't want to let people down. So in a way, the layoff is actually the kick they need because they wouldn't have done it without that. As you said before, sometimes it's easier for someone to push you off the cliff than jump off it, right? Totally. And I think actually the word you use there, prestige, is so important as well. You, know, you realize how tied up you are in titles. So, you know, I was very proud to be a COO. You know, I'd wanted to be a C-suite of an agency since I first started there 20 years before. I liked the title. I liked walking around the agency and feeling like I was responsible and had authority. But you then realized the moment I was made redundant that I had zero authority because there was always someone more senior than you who can just take your job away from you. And then now, you know, if I go out and I meet people and they say, what do you do? The pride I feel in saying I'm a coach who helps people versus being the COO of an advertising agency it's much greater being a coach that helps people because actually I'm helping people as a CEO of an advertising agency. I was just, you know, part of the system that was, you know, pushing out this message and this message to people that they're not good enough. You know, so I was very pleased to turn my back on that in the end. So you were there for 12 years, right? So what was your first role there? Well, I was in the industry for 20 years. So I was what they call client side or account management. So that's effectively working on these sort of the outsides of the organization with your clients, trying to get new business in, trying to manage projects through the business, bringing stuff back to your kind of your strategists and your creatives. And it's a hugely stressful job. And it's a job that involves a lot of BS, a lot of kind of fronting it, a lot of faking it, you fake it till you know it kind of stuff. And it's exhausting and very stressful. You know, and it took its toll on me in the end. I'm like, when I was 40, my father passed away and I had got a big emotional breakdown because I'd been storing an awful lot of stress for an awful lot of years. And those environments don't really allow people to say, help, I'm struggling. And so, you know, for me, I manifested in what it does for a lot of people, which was a complete breakdown. And I ended up in therapy and much better for it. But in the UK, I'm not sure about Canada, but in the UK, the highest rate of suicide in men is 45 to 49 year olds. And that is absolutely a symptom of this issue of people in their midlife being very, very unhappy, having nowhere to turn and, you know, making a hugely tragic decision. In the UK, certainly it's not that linked to mental illness. It's linked to, you know, to mental health. And often the people who are, you know, finding that's the only source of their way out are absolutely caught up in a midlife crisis by all accounts. Yeah, I've heard stories about people actually especially men can be suicide once they got laid out from their job and they couldn't find anything right away. And they, they feel all the stress and burn because they have that responsibility and they also lost a sense of purpose. So they don't know what to do. And like you said, that was their only way out, right? Again, one of the main reasons I'm doing coaching for men in midlife is I completely believe that if I'd had coaching prior to my breakdown, I wouldn't have had a breakdown and I wouldn't have needed to go into therapy. So I was lucky I haven't had major trauma in my life. I was just in a very, very low place at that point and, and was worn down. So the coaching I do with men in midlife is to try and, if anything, you know, interrupt that problem where people seek, you know, don't know how to seek help and feel like they have only eight, one choice to make. You know, the reality is there is always another choice and the other choice is seeking help. And there is you know, increasing amounts of help out there, but you've got to be able to look for it and take it. 
Yeah, and as you said, like there's a couple of choices, right? You can get help or you can quit, so to speak, right? But again, if you quit, there's no turning back. Well, this other avenue, you can't turn your life around, right? And I think also, you know, it's and you know, I've lost colleagues to suicide, and the shocking thing with all of them was that it was totally unexpected. It wasn't seen. They weren't manic depressives. They weren't didn't say they didn't have mental illness. They were just carrying an awful lot of emotionality that they didn't share with their wives, with their friends, with anybody. And you know, the idea that everybody's better off without them is just such a horrible you know, falsehood, whatever life was going to put in their place, they had support networks around them. They just weren't able to reach out for them. And that's, yeah, we, we have to make it easier for men, you know, in your generation coming through is, you know, is hopefully doing a better job of it than ours of asking each other, you know, how are you doing? You know, and I think, you know, men need to actually ask each other how they're doing in a way that isn't, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you doing? It's all good. It's like, how are you really doing? You know, let's be able to have an emotional conversation that involves the conversation that is, I'm not coping and I don't know what to do and I need help. You know, that's, um, we've got to get to that place. I think women are much better at asking the right questions of each other and creating a space in which they can honestly answer. Men, you know, we just forget. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can go and spend an afternoon in a pub or a bar with a friend and come home and my wife says, you know, how's so-and-so? And I'll be like, oh. Yeah, I don't really know how they are, actually. I mean, we talked about sport, we talked about jobs and stuff, but I don't think I really know how they are. We've got to get better at that. I think women are better at creating deeper social circles where they can talk about anything, really, while men is more superficial conversations, such as, oh, how's your job? Did you see this football game? Things of that nature, right? So it goes back to what you said, like, it's very superficial talk between men, but there's no deeper conversation compared to women, which is also why women tend to have healthier social lives, because they're able to open up to their friends, right? Yeah, but all it takes is one person to do it. When I was in therapy, I remember meeting up with a group of my school friends, about 10 of my school friends, we had an annual reunion. And halfway through, I just suddenly thought, this is crazy. Everyone's asking me how I am, and I'm telling them I'm fine. And so I admitted, I said, look, actually, guys, I'm not doing very well, and I'm in therapy. And there was a bit of a, you know, there's still a big stigma in the UK, and there was a lot of silence. But afterwards, three or four of them came to me and said, hey, could you just tell me more about it? What's it like? What's it all about? And so I think it just takes men to speak up, you know, and that's why I'm a big supporter of anybody in social media spaces like LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever, who is standing up and saying, hey, you know, I've had a therapy, I've had breakdowns, but I'm okay and I've come through it and I want to share my experience, you know. I think there's a real power to men speaking to other men about their experiences. Going back to your father's passing, a common thing that men and women have is the needing the approval of their parents, right? So they go take these prestigious jobs to appease their parents, but they're not truly happy, right? Again, they feel stuck in terms of wanting to break free, but they don't want to let down their parents because their parents spent so much money and time invested in building their future right for them so what's your advice on that i mean honesty is the advice i think you know a lot of the work i do with men in midlife is making them recognize what is theirs and what have they inherited and i think it's absolutely is you know parents can often try and live their lives through their children and conquer their disappointments through their children you know i can look at my background and i went you know i did history at university with no real interest in history you know i followed a path that was laid out for me and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't have the confidence to say, this isn't what I want. And I think that's what we've got to find is an ability to understand, you know, what is ours and what is being given to us. And having conversations with our parents around that to say, you know, this isn't for me. I totally appreciate what you're trying to do for me, but this isn't for me. But it's a very hard conversation to have. You know, there are are grown men in their 40s and 50s who haven't had 
the conversation with their fathers who are still pushing them down a certain path, you know, and there's that sense of, but if I wasn't to do it, I'd be disappointing them. And you have to say in the end, whose life is it, you know? And also, I guess one of the things I would say is we live an awful lot of our lives in a presumptive state. We presume an awful lot. So a lot of the clients I work with will say to me, you know, it would break my father's heart if, and you say, how do you know that? You're making a presumption or they'll say other men at my age are doing X or all my friends are making more money than me or whatever it might be. We make these massive assumptions. What we're doing in that situation is creating an environment in which we can't change. And it's a little psychological trick we're playing on ourselves, which is to create an environment in which we don't have to change because changing is scary. And my job as a coach, again, is to break down those presumptions, call them out and say, you know, do you actually have any evidence to support that presumption? And what evidence could you gain if you actually had a conversation with someone? So what conversation could you have to get some evidence behind that? Because otherwise you're living your life on a lie. There was a guest I had on my podcast and she changed her life once her father passed away because it goes back to the expectation. But then once they pass away, the expectation is no longer there because they're not here anymore. Do you find that with your clients as well? Like They end up reaching out to you once a family member passes away and they realize life is short and they want to do something that fulfills them? For sure. I mean, you know, there are often triggers to midlife, I don't like midlife crisis, but midlife negativity or midlife struggles. And certainly losing a parent is, or having a marriage breakdown or being made redundant. I mean, these are all triggers that question our sense of self. And so for sure, if our image of ourselves is wrapped up in our parents' perspectives, and then they pass away, then suddenly, yeah, we don't have anything to tell us what to do or, or to, you know, you think about a lot of people pleasers, it stems from a desire to please their parents in the first place. So yeah, for sure, those are the triggers. And I think the gift is to try and do something about this stuff before that stuff happens. You know, I mean, I don't really believe in regrets, but I have a, certainly have a regret that my father isn't alive to see the work I'm doing now and to understand who his son really was, because I think the son that he saw through most of my adult life was a bit of a fake, was doing stuff, you know, that wasn't really him. So there's that regret. So I think, you know, what I'd always say to people is, you know, try not to live a life of regret, try and get in ahead of that, you know. And often these things surprise us, don't they? You know, we think it's going to go one way, but it doesn't go that way. So he didn't know about your coaching aspirations before he passed, right? No, so I, mean, I was still a CEO of an agency, you know, successful, prestigious, you know, someone, I guess, whose title, I believe, gave him some social currency when all the fathers are sitting around talking about what their sons do, you know, oh, mine's a banker, mine's a lawyer, mine's a CEO, you know, whatever. It's a social currency, isn't it? But again, in those situations, how many of them are saying, you know, whose son's happy, whose son's content, you know? But it's a different generation. They weren't emotionally open. You know, my father was you know, sent to boarding school when he was five years old in another continent, didn't see his parents for many years at a time. You know, he was an emotionally repressed man. He didn't know how to have those conversations. I think it's absolutely on us now to recognize that's not a positive thing. That's a really negative thing. You make a good point, especially in my culture, the Asian culture, where, again, parents are living vicariously through their kids, say, oh, my son went to so-and-so school. Oh, my son's a banker, right? So it goes back to what I said before about you don't want to quit these prestigious jobs because then you're letting your parents down because then it goes back to, oh, what's your son do or daughter do? Oh, he or she got laid off, right? So there's a sense of embarrassment, right? Yeah. And in the end, I think that we have to get to that point where, you know, what do I want for my kid? I've got two sons who are kind of 12 and 10. What do I want for them? I want them to be happy and I want them to feel fulfilled and I don't want them to waste 
you know, decades of their life doing something for me. I want them to, you know, do it for them. My pride, I hope, will come from seeing them realise who they are and be able to live a life according to that, you know. So how can I help them do that? That's a really difficult part of fatherhood because you certainly, of course, you carry your own expectations and hopes and you see the mistakes that you made and you don't want them to make, which is why, going back to the Simon Pegg quote, you know, we're all good dads and bad dads. That's life. You know, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the work I do as a coach is, is exploring what we call universal drivers. What in our family makeup, what in our background created a sense of expectation? You know, is it being perfect? Is it trying hard? Is it being strong? What was the message that we were hearing? And the reality is they're called universal drivers for a reason, because everyone has one. As a parent, you can't leave your children unaffected. You're going to influence them for good and for worse. That's just parenthood. But also you try and put as much into you know, being a good parent as you can. Going back to your career in the agency world and you moving up the ladder, what is some advice that you can provide younger people in their 20s that are starting their career when it comes to like climbing the corporate ladder and some guidance on making sure that they are heading into the right path? Or again, they might also fall into a midlife transition period that they need help with down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not anti-corporate. I had a very good career. So, no, I mean, for me, when I was a manager of people, I love managing people, mentoring people. What I always said was two things. My form of management was what I called the push-me-pull-you school of management. And what I mean by that is that for me to grow up the ladder, I need my boss to move up the ladder to create the space for me. So part of my job is not just being as good as I can be, it's helping them be as good as they can be. And equally, as the manager... In order for them to move up the ladder, they need to be able to show the corporation who's coming up behind them, who's going to take their role. And so they need to pull me up behind them. And so you end up with this push me, pull you. I'm pushing the person above me, the person above me is pulling me up. And so I think what I'd say to anyone who's thinking about promotions and stuff is build a relationship with your manager and a relationship which is tied into your goals and is tied into your values. Talk about this stuff. So it isn't a reactive, what do I need to do to get better? It's much more of a combined strategy for how are we going to work our way up through this company. And that would be the same message to managers, which is, you know, if you want to excel, you have to create the people behind you to take your job. You have to be secure enough in your own self and your own ability to climb the ladder to give the people below you the chance to take your job. And people struggle with that massively as managers. You know, delegation, we know how many people would struggle with delegation. But actually, delegation is empowering the person behind you to take your job to allow you to move up the ladder. So if you're not delegating, if you're someone who's controlling everything and not delegating, all you're doing is stifling your own career. Absolutely. Again, there's nothing wrong with corporate. It's about alignment with the values between you and your manager. The most common thing that in terms of why people are not happy with their work is, yes, there's lack of fulfillment in the work, but there's also a lack of a strong relationship with the manager too, right? Yeah, it is a relationship game. And I think, you know, as I say, going back to my analogy of the box, if you treat your job just like a box, a set of metrics that you've somehow got to deliver against, and then you're allowing a situation in which the company judges you on your performance, you're in an entirely reactive state. So I talk to a lot of my clients about this idea of a vertical role and a horizontal role. The vertical role is the role that you signed up for. It's the job description. It's the title. You know, and usually there's a fairly clear definition of what that job is, right? You know what the metrics are, you know what the skills and capabilities are. But I think you should always be aware of what the horizontal role is. And the horizontal role is what can I bring to this organization that uses other parts of my capabilities and skills that aren't used in the day job in order to enhance both my own 
personal brand, but also enhance the culture and the values of the organization I'm in. And I think that can be a really powerful thing to think outside of just the box in which you are employed. What can I give to this organization and take from them in order to be a bigger, a more whole human being? And those people, I think, who do that generally are, it's appreciated by organizations. They don't want a robot. They don't want someone who's just an automaton who's just delivering on the minimum of what their expectation is. They want people who are going to bring their passions from outside the box to bear, because that's what allows an organization to evolve. I definitely agree with that. And in terms of your work in midlife, helping men with midlife, what are some of the common impulsive decisions that they make before they end up working with you? All sorts of impulsive decisions. I mean, you know, you talk about relationships, you're talking about a lot of frustration and anger coming out. So, I mean, what I tend to see is frustration. And certainly I felt that, you know, there's a term, you know, the irritable male syndrome. And it's, you know, we see this, you know, men in their forties who are angry and that anger spills out in the supermarket when they're telling their kids off. It, it spills out when they suddenly have a blowout at the person they're managing on their team, or it comes out when they're you know, dealing with a colleague or friend. And it's a symptom of not being happy with life. And so I think it's less that they're conscious decisions that people are making, and it's more that they're unconscious decisions. The one night stand when you're away on business somewhere, you know, I think for many people, that's a really tragic outcome of being unhappy as opposed to some kind of carefully planned decision. Well, I'm not saying everybody, there's certainly people who, who probably that's their life plan. But for a lot of men, it's just, it's a symptom just as it would be if they started shouting at their kids or you know, it's just, it's an output of a negative emotion that they've not been able to express previously. So working with you as a coach, how long does it take to help them in their transformation to having a more fulfilling life? It's a great question. I mean, I think changes by person. My program kind of runs over, it's an eight-stage program that can be completed in a couple of months, but more often is more like four months. And it's split between self-exploration and then growth. And the self-exploration phase is really important because a lot of men have never spent that time to really think about what their values even are. And a lot of the people I work with I'll say, right, the first stage is values. And they almost look at me blankly. Like, what are you even talking about? And so that work of understanding our values, understanding the swim lane that we've created for ourselves and how limiting that can be, understanding why we're triggered by certain things and what our patterns of behavior are and how they're positive and negative. So that exploration work then sets us up for the second half, which is when we start to think about how do we change? And that's when we start to focus on what is change what are the things I've committed to that I'm not succeeding? How do you go about delivering an outcome? How do you go about changing patterns of behavior to deliver that outcome? And so it starts to become much more conscious. We talk about something called the third position. And the analogy I always give for the third position is if you imagine you're at an airport and you're killing time before your flight and you go and sit in a cafe and you're having a coffee and a couple come and sit on the table next to you and they're having a really big argument. They're both very emotionally in that argument. You, as someone sitting, as a stranger sitting next to them, because you are able to distance yourself from the emotions of the conversation, you're not emotionally apathetic. You're still emotionally engaged, but you're not being led by your emotions. You're able to hear the conversation in a way they can't hear it. And if they were to turn to you, which is unlikely, and say, hey, you know, excuse me, chap over there, what do you think we should do? You would actually probably be able to be fairly analytical and say, well, I think you're not hearing this and you're not doing this. The struggle in our own lives is to do that same thing, is to find this third position outside of the conversation between our conscious and our unconscious, our inner critical voice. 
how do we step back from that and observe our behaviors? How do we step back from that and go, oh, okay, I get it. Every time I'm anxious about my work, I fall into a pattern behavior of working even harder, and that leaves me feeling more unfulfilled, etc. How do I break that pattern? How do I grow my self-awareness of where that anxiety is coming from and do something different with it? So that's the work we're trying to do. Is I'm trying to get people to build self-awareness and then manage change. And in the change space, what we're trying to do is a lot of micro-goal work. So understanding that you don't always have a clear picture of your ultimate goal. A lot of the people who come to me know they want change, but they don't know what they want to change into. They know they want to work in a different way they want to work at or as. And my job is to say, right, the more you fixate on trying to figure out this perfect job, the more you'll never move from the place you're in now. You're paralyzed by indecision. Instead of which, let's play with the possibility of different futures. So let's pick four or five things that you could do that you're passionate about. Maybe they are pastimes you have, hobbies you have. Maybe they're the thing you studied at university, but you then turned your back on to join a company. We then say, well, within that space, what could you do to find out the different jobs that exist in that space? How can you evidence what it's like to do that? So you're not just jumping off a cliff to a new job. You're thinking about what would it be like to be, you know, to run my own shop, to run my own business, to give it up and be a ski instructor? What would it actually look like? And would that job be satisfying in the ways I think it would? And then how might I move towards it? And that, I think, holds true to careers advice for people leaving college and you know, graduates and stuff. You know, when I left university, I went to the graduate officer in my university and I said, I have no idea what I want to do. What do people who got a history degree from this university, a very good university in the UK, Durham University, what do history graduates do? And she said, oh, it's easy. 40% of them become accountants, 40% of them become lawyers, and 20% of them do a master's in history. And I was like, well, I don't don't want to do any of those things. I'm totally lost. I don't know what to do. And I think, you know, had somebody said to me, think about the things that you're passionate about. Think about evidencing the different things you could do with those and play with the idea of them as opposed to feeling like limited by the choices. I would have ended up in a very different place than I did. So you've undergone your own transformation change, right? So what is one big learning lesson that you've had during this change that you want to provide in terms of guidance for people that are in midlife that also want to make a big change? Like the hardest challenge, so to speak. I think probably the biggest one we've talked about, and it's the money one. You know, if you had asked me five years ago, could I live on less money? I would have said, no way. I need more money. Yeah, I got to keep earning more money. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And then with COVID and then with redundancy and then with the job, you know, I'm probably earning, I would say, a third of what I was earning as a COO. But I would say I'm a hundred times happier. (laughs) You know, do we have enough money? Yes. Have we had to tighten our belts a bit at times? Yes. But the things we've tightened our belts on weren't stuff that brought us any happiness. You know, they were the other stuff. I mean, it's amazing when you look at it, how much money we spend that brings us no happiness at all. So whenever I hear people say to me, I can't move because of my salary and the lifestyle, I say to them, you can. Because what you'll find is that your lifestyle will adapt. But actually, the most important thing is you'll be happy. And your people around you will be happy. And your sense of life being valuable will increase massively. So chasing money is not a route to happiness for most people. For some people, it is because they're so rooted into that as a success metric and their self-worth. But for most people, it's a dead-end game. You're never going to earn enough money 
to make you feel truly satisfied. And all you're doing in the meantime is missing out on all the good stuff, you know. I'm pretty sure you're aware of studies where there's a baseline of salary that you need to meet your essential demands. But then after that, it doesn't really change much, right? Yeah. And it gets in the way. You know, I worked incredibly hard to get promoted as hard as I could up the line as fast as I could. And I missed out on my kids' first six years of their life because I was working weekends and nights and I never saw them. And the happiness I now have from just being in part of, you know, engaged in their life, part of their life, seeing them, actually understanding their highs and lows and their experiences and their achievements. I mean, it's just, you can't put a price on that. Again, Andrew, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights and your journey with your own transformation with midlife. So how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you can help them? Yeah, cheers. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoyed our conversation. So yeah, I'm going to be found in a couple of places. So my coaching website is www.midlife-coach.co.uk. But probably the best place to interact with me is on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Waddell on LinkedIn. And, you know, I love engaging with people and having conversations. And I share a lot of content on there personal content, as well as kind of observations and coaching techniques and tips. As I say, I've also got a background in organizational psychology. So quite a lot of the stuff I put on there is also about organizations and management and teams and taking up job roles and stuff like that. So I think whatever stage of life you're in, if you're in midlife, then absolutely there's stuff on there for you for coaching. But if you're kind of young, if you're 20s, 30s, and you're just thinking about your role in an organization, there's plenty of stuff on there for that as well. Again, really appreciate your time, Andrew, and have a great rest of your week. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Max. You too. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.